welcome to the I Am The Health Visitor podcast. It's Jenny here. And Amy. And um, hello. We're, we're together. <laughs> so uh, it's very exciting. It's the first time we've been together recording since uh, Miss A made mm-hmm. her arrival. Yeah, my little Back person. in March. Yeah. And uh, so we're very excited. I've managed to escape London and come up to Warwick for a day. A little jaunt. Indeed. It's wonderful. So, it's very good to have you. Oh, and good to have you. How are you doing? We're doing really good, thanks. Yeah, really good. All the kind of normal, like, newborn chaos and, like, <laughs> you know, your entire world just revolves around this new little person for a while, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so, I, I kind of... I, I, it's like, I didn't want... Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't want to, to definitely say that will happen mm-hmm. but it was not a surprise when it happened no yeah. <laughs> so sorry guys it's been a bit quiet on the podcast front uh we haven't managed very many have we in the last six months but um, no but for good reason you don't get those six months ever again it's true and it's it's that thing where i think you're you're battling to try and think how you're ever going to fit parts of your previous life back in around Definitely. a new person who's just arrived and taken over your entire world indeed indeed so, but yeah, but she's doing happened. really good, and yeah. um, I'm loving it and loving her, and she's amazing. So oh, she is utterly oh, yummy. <laughs> she has thighs to die for, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> she's got such chunky thighs. They're amazing. Oh, all her little rolls. And I have sniffed her head, and I can confirm <laughs> it still smells gorgeous. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so... Um, we're coming up for six months, I think, now since, well, nearly six months since she was born. So we're thinking now we'll start to try and get back on track with a podcast and start trying to drop some episodes a little bit more regularly. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yeah, do get in touch with us. I know even while we've been away, there's been a few people in touch with us. Yeah, been great. Been um, but yeah, do get in touch with us. Anything coming up that you either think we should be aware of because you think it might make mm. a good podcast mm. or even um anything that's come up in practice then do let us know and obviously if you're a new listener to the podcast hello welcome Hi. um we Thanks have got i think it's like 36 episodes already available Loads, yeah. and yeah if you have a look through there's bound to be something of interest Absolutely. um especially if you're someone who is just starting the um the Skiffin or Skippin, yeah, of course, depending. I, I seem to work with a lot of people who call it a Skiffin, and I've always <laughs> called it a Skippin. But <laughs> who knows? Whatever you, however you want to pronounce um, it, you're all So the, these guys are the guys who are start, the guys who are starting now are starting that last year of mm-hmm. the course, sort of as we know it. Yeah. Before it turns, well, before we believe it's going to turn into a modular course. Yeah. So um, if you're, yeah, if you've found us and you're, you're just starting your journey best of luck yeah. and i promise there is so many things that we've done already that you can listen to on the way in Absolutely, and way out yeah. of uni Lots and everything and, and hopefully um you've got a wonderful health visiting journey ahead of you it's quite a tricky time at the moment and i think the last six months has been quite while i haven't been kind of um, it's all your fault you so, let you. yeah that's it i turn my back <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> everything crashes down completely no, um but i haven't been hugely in touch with it all but i'm aware that there's been lots of difficulty up and down the country and and mm-hmm. things are actually very very difficult for health visitors in practice at the moment yeah. i know there's been strikes going on and also yeah. health visitor numbers are at an all-time low even lower now than they were before the implementation plan so um nationally the picture's not um particularly rosy for health visiting at the moment but no. i think what's incredible is that as a profession everybody 
we're still so passionate about it and we know the importance of it for the families that we work with every day so it's trying to hang on to that um in your daily life isn't it I suppose and, yeah. and um and trying to remember what an amazing job you're doing and everyone who's listening to this is is an amazing health visitor we know you are because you're listening to something like this so definitely yeah you know, <laughs> give yourself kudos and pat, pat on the back for hanging on in there and um yeah and know what an important job you're doing yeah oh uh, yeah definitely yeah uh, sending lots of love to anyone in Lincolnshire yeah is, absolutely uh, and those who are supporting the guys in Lincolnshire yeah, as well well 100%. done yeah well done um but yeah so today to get back kind of onto the the horse of yeah. uh, riding so yeah. as ever Amy has been the one who's done a lot of the reading up on <laughs> things and no. I'm just going to chip in every so often um, but we're looking at actually useful comments that well, we okay. need to hear yeah around around so um, we're looking yes. at domestic violence aren't we we are yes. thought we'd go in with a nice light yeah that's easy it topic. we always start Definitely. with something gentle a bit fluffy yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> and, and not just any domestic violence but you know the really light and fluffy end of the scale domestic homicide oh excellent yeah that's what we're talking about today so um i don't know whether people saw but um there has been a domestic abuse has been in the back in the news again um very recently literally this week um uh, with a new paper that's just been released by dr jane monkton smith um who is a criminology um uh, criminologist criminologist yeah <laughs> criminologist um and she has released a paper um on femicide so intimate partner femicide which is obviously um murder of a woman by her male partner yes um so she has the the headline in bbc news which i'll link to in the um in the blog in the notes for the episode sorry baby brain i'm literally going to be scatterbrain aren't i through this <laughs> that's all right we'll just keep put, going. put the sentences together for yourself listeners that's all right uh, rearrange these words um the headline is domestic abuse killers follow eight stage pattern study says um and so what she's produced is a eight stage model um which looks at homicides um and suggests that in the ones that she looked at they went through these eight stages um so, I mean, before we kind of get into the meat of the article, really, the, in the beginning of it sort of talks about um, statistics on homicide, which I thought were pretty shocking. So I thought mm. that would be quite a good place to start. Definitely. Um, so in general, men tend to be the perpetrators and victims of um, homicide, generally. Yeah. So all homicides, pretty much. So 95% are perpetrators and 80% of homicides have male victims so um dominated really by men both on both sides with the exception of intimate partner homicides so with the exception of domestic violence in domestic violence women are um victims 82 percent of the time so that's a big contrast from normally Men are victims 80 percent of the time yeah in domestic abuse 82 percent of the victims are women. women So it really is that kind of classic heterosexual relationships with a male perpetrator. So that's not to say that other forms of domestic violence don't exist and that there obviously do is still possible to get domestic abuse yeah. in same-sex relationships or in 
the other way around where the female is the perpetrator male is the victim um and that's not to belittle those experiences but this paper that we're reading specifically focuses on femicide yeah so it's talking about women who've been killed by their male partners um and i thought that was quite that sh- that was quite shocking that statistic definitely and she looked at a huge number of cases so she was looking at um all of the cases where women have been killed yeah and it was um, over a th- three-year period, you said, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, between 2012 and 2015. And the thing that really shocked me was how, how many, many yeah. that was, was. Yeah, so 372 cases in total across that three-year period. I mean, that's two a week. It's shocking, isn't it's it? It's appalling. And when you think, you know, we occasionally hear a big news article about it, but I don't think we hear two a week no you know? no definitely um, not. so there's definitely a lot that not. aren't making it to the headlines and i think media is one of the things the kind of the discourse in, in women um, yeah. victims in the media is, well, i think is it's one the, of the sort of thing where a lot of them it'll, it'll come under that category where you hear it as a little news headline saying oh you know, a woman's body has been found mm. at a house da, da, da. Mm. you know police you know um, someone's been arrested and police are looking for no one else and you're like Okay. Yeah. And you kind of think, oh, that's good. They no the mention of already. domestic violence. But yeah, exactly. So this this paper sort of starts with a picture of risk assessment in the UK at the moment. So how do we risk assess domestic abuse cases currently? Yeah. Because what you're currently what you're looking for, obviously, with safeguarding the sharp end of that, you're looking for homicide risk, aren't you? With yeah. Domestic abuse, because we know that these cases do relatively frequently as we've just highlighted end in that and obviously that's the ultimate um end that nobody wants to see so um at the minute risk assessment what kind of risk assessments do you typically see in practice at the minute do you think i don't even know what kind of yeah i mean or dash we mentioned we were talking about Mm -hmm. Um, but often a lot of it stems from using like the assessment triangle yeah. and just sort of even that kind of looking at that you know history of what have you seen during a visit, what yeah. is your feeling, you know, yeah. how yeah. is the behaviour between them, how they've spoken about. Yeah. Um, there isn't a particular brilliant tool way that we of, use. of yeah. identifying yeah. risk. No. Yeah. And that's sort of what she's saying, the kind of um, methods that are typically seen in practice that she talks about and I think this backs up my experience as well yeah. is like you said a risk um, identification checklist so something like the dash which has like a list of high risk situations um, and then how many of those is it ticking What which boxes are we ticking with those yeah. that checklist and then in, you count literally the number of risks factors that are there and then that gives you how high or low the risk yeah. is. Um, I mean, there's been research recently, and I'll link to a couple of papers which I've read um, on the Dash, um, which are really, really interesting. And both of them are suggesting that actually perhaps it's not the amazing risk assessment checklist that we perhaps think it yeah. is. I'm not saying that it's not good, and I think actually where services are using it well, there's definitely an improvement on not using a checklist. So it's not saying don't use it at all. It's saying it's probably the best we've got, but it's saying that the best we've got is perhaps not the panacea. Yeah. Um, It's still a tool to use as part of an assessment, not an over and above. And it, it might be that perhaps the 
factors that are in there are not particularly predictive of um, reoffending or you know particularly yeah. high risk behavior not particularly predictive of homicide necessarily not particularly no. predictive of ongoing domestic abuse and it might be that it's not really about the number of risk markers and that's not enough information it's also about the clusters of them and when they occur yeah whether they occur alongside each other and when they happen in time yeah in the chronology so of things. i was gonna say it's looking more at that chronology mm-hmm. and so actually yeah, because I suppose it can happen sometimes where we're working with a family for a number of months mm. or years. Mm. And it's almost like peace and those bits of the jigsaw together. It's like mm. you sometimes get almost like a drip feed, don't you? Yeah. And as their confidence, you know, as the, the mother, you know, the woman's yeah, confidence absolutely. builds in a relationship with you, then she might start to share a bit more mm. in things. And you, I think, often um, don't get a full history. The nature of working with domestic abuse is that you tend to get information in little piecemeal yeah. bits and bobs yeah. and they'll test you out by telling you something that's not too shocking and see how you respond to yeah. it and then next time if you've responded okay they might share a little bit more and they might share a little bit more yeah. and I think that's quite a common picture so it can make it difficult actually to get a really good chronology and certainly I've found when, when I'm working with safeguarding cases with domestic abuse I've found chronologies to be really really useful yes um, because they really give you a clear picture and actually not necessarily just including the current relationship as part of that chronology mm. but also perpetrators previous relationships as well yeah um so so yeah looking at it from a temporal perspective really is what this study is suggesting that we should be doing it's saying like let's think about domestic abuse as a timeline yeah and it's saying that they have managed to identify these eight stages that in Almost all of the cases, which that's the most that's the most powerful thing I think is the consistency. Yes. Yeah. Almost all of them, the three hundred and seventy-two, met every single one of these eight stages. They went through all of these eight stages. And were there any cases where a stage was skipped, or is it inconsistent which stage was skipped? And so the ones where they haven't, they couldn't identify all eight stages. The only stage they couldn't identify was the first stage. Okay. And that is, the first stage is um, a pre-relationship history of stalking or abuse. Okay. So the reason they couldn't identify a pre-relationship history of stalking or abuse is that this is their first relationship. Right. So oh, they so met so all the stalking, of the stages. The stalking the isn't specifically of... stalking the woman they then have the relationship with. It's stalking other women or... A history of stalking or abuse, other domestic other, abuse. Yeah. In previous oh, yeah, relationships. Yeah, other domestic abuse and, and other stalking. It's not like, yeah. So, yes. it's So that's the first stage is this, this perpetrator. Yeah has had previous relationships which have involved stalking and abuse. Right, I see. But in some of the cases, they weren't able to meet that first stage because they'd never had a previous relationship. Yeah, I see. But in all others, like basically all of the others, they, they met all, yeah. all eight. So should we go through what the, the stages are? So yeah. So we've talked so, about the first stage. Yeah. Yeah. So the I second mean, one is the romance develops quickly into a serious relationship. Um, which I think we see quite frequently, yeah. that kind of very fast progression through the early stages yes. of a relationship, yeah. moving in together very quickly, getting pregnant very quickly. Yeah. Um, relationship becoming dominated by coercive control, which, of course, is a huge bracket, isn't it? Yes. That's number three, and that, that just encompasses yeah. basically all domestic abuse behaviours. So much, and something which is still 
tricky to clearly define. I wonder how easy, it, you know, I think sometimes it's a, it's tricky even for um, women to um, what's the word, disclose that because mm. sometimes I don't think they even quite know what no. they're was it they're experiencing and absolutely things. yeah and I think you've hit upon actually one of the problems I have with this um paper is that those these these categories are quite broad so actually although it's a very consistent thing that she's found these eight steps are consistent across all of the 370 odd cases which is impressive the consistency is very impressive having said that they're quite broad brackets and I can see that if you are using quite a subjective methodology, which yeah. she is, you would be able to find them in most abusive relationships. Yeah. You would be able to find these steps. And I think it would she, be rare to yeah, find an abusive relationship which yeah. doesn't include these. Yeah, because the next stage is a, a trigger. Mm-hmm. Which a trigger, yeah. Is interest, I find it interesting that the examples they give in the article, I don't know if they give more... Yeah, in the actual paper they do, yeah. The relationship ends or the perpetrator gets into financial difficulties. Now, obviously, one of the big triggers that we would see is a pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so that Uh, could be a trigger. Um, It's any any trigger. Or even not so much pregnancy, but the arrival of the baby. Yeah, absolutely. That could be a trigger. Um, A problem in, um, yeah, a financial issue. The relationship breakdown is is the classic trigger. It's a separation. But essentially, the trigger they're talking about, what they're talking about in the paper is anything that threatens um, the control that that man has in the relationship. So any kind of trigger um, that might do that. So that's stage four. Um, And then an escalation. So an increase in the intensity or frequency of the partner's controls tactics. So stalking, threatening suicide, increasing um, intensity or frequency of violent episodes, um, increasing intensity of control and um, coercive behaviours. That escalation, which I think is captured by current risk assessment. I think we definitely recognise escalation as to be an issue. Um. Then, so stage six being a change in thinking. Um, and this is the idea of choosing to move on. Um, the typical thing you hear is, if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. You hear that line, yeah. don't you? you know? yeah, and yeah, when you yeah. hear that, there's a major red flag in yeah. your head then. You know, is, if yeah. the perpetrator or said I'll something do, like I'll that. I'll do this and this will make you realise you can't live without me. A sudden change yeah. in their patterns of thought is, is what she's labelled it if you like um, and then the last two stages are planning so buying rep- weapons seeking opportunities to get the victim alone and then the last stage is the homicide itself yeah. so um, as I say eight steps none of those steps I think are like particularly shocking I don't think anyone who works with domestic abuse would go oh yeah, I was that's to new. see that one yeah, there no. you know they're all, all fairly very, classic very familiar things yeah. Um, the other downside of it, I suppose, as a model, um, is that there's a lot of variability in the speed of progression through the stages. So for some relationships, this happened within a matter of days or months. Yeah. And it went from a pre-relationship history all the way through to the homicide in, in a very short space of time. And in other relationships, it can last a lifetime. So, yeah. you know, that can take, those eight stages can take decades to go through so in which case it's quite difficult from a risk assessment predictive point of view from a service perspective as well to know how to intervene and where to intervene in that process and that's likely I mean of course it's a complex thing it's going to be very different from woman to woman Um, 
the fact that there's the other downside i mean it's difficult because this this paper is qualitative qualitative paper it's not a quantitative paper she's not trying to be quantitative she's trying to be qualitative she's trying to look at the dominant discourse around domestic abuse and to challenge it by suggesting another narrative and i think that's a very very helpful thing to do um i suppose the downside of that is in terms of using it as a predictive tool or a risk assessment tool, which is almost what the paper is suggesting you might be able to do, right? You you can't really because no. it doesn't have a control group, so you can't say what you need to know is how many cases of domestic abuse were these eight stages followed and didn't end in homicide. Oh yeah, well you don't have that information because no. she's only studied homicide cases and because potentially those cases where they they didn't end up in homicide were the police even aware mm, exactly. were were even other domestic se- services aware yeah services and organizations aware you know it's a really tricky one there is still that unknown thing of well, how many yeah women and families go through this mm. and actually manage it themselves and absolutely there's a huge oh. hidden nature of the problem isn't there definitely and i think that makes it difficult from a professional perspective you know yeah. to think about um how how actually we can um manage this yeah. in practice because it doesn't necessarily mean that because they've gone through stages one to six they're going to kill them yeah that doesn't that oh, isn't yeah, no, what this exactly. is saying yeah no um and i think there's a danger with the headlines that you, that could be read into it and that isn't at all what yeah. she's suggesting so just to be clear about that and also that they can travel through the stages and then go back to an earlier stage and she mentioned in the paper that these kind of circular journeys through the stages are very very common so they um, might go from they might have a pre-relationship history then have a quickly developing relationship that becomes dominated by coercive control then there might be a trigger an escalation and then they might go back yeah or they might separate and they might start with a new relationship yeah or they might go back to a quickly developing romance yeah so there's that cycle that we yeah. know about in domestic abuse it's interesting as well that with this because we know it's often it does seem to and i don't know about you but i know even socially outside of health and mm, things mm. we all have friends who were prone to having those really yeah, fast developing relationships yeah. And those things where, you know, no sooner they met someone that they'd be talking about moving in mm. together with it. And it would always be that sort of cycle that they were in. And at the same time, knowing that there were particular vulnerabilities that mm. they had themselves, you'd always wonder if we need to look at all seeing it. Is it worth us at some point, whether someone is already looking at particular traits or vulnerabilities that um, women may have to then sort of be caught in that trap and whether yeah. there's something it's that thing like always using the Dave Mundy analogy yeah. about fixing the hole in the fence before they fall in the river rather than fishing them out the river later absolutely on. there's a public health element isn't yeah there? but then I suppose it's a tricky one where because I suppose as health visitors we're not seeing them until they're at the earliest pregnant already yeah Absolutely. Or even yeah, in, in which in case, pregnancy or with children already. If you think of this kind of as a, as an eight stage model, you're already at a trigger really yes. before um, we're involved. Yeah, and you could see pregnancy as a trigger. Yeah, um, because it and typically that's one of the dominant theories for why um, dom- domestic abuse increases in frequency or intensity during pregnancy is because yeah. the idea is that it threatens that control. <laughs> It threatens the control oh, that the dear. perpetrator has in the relationship. 
So I think as a predictive tool, um, and if you're looking at kind of risk factors and, and risk analysis, I'm not sure how massively helpful it is. No. In terms of, I think it's a great start, but in yeah. terms of health visitors being able to go out there and use it tomorrow in practice, I don't think it's necessarily there. No. Um, I do think it's got some really useful messages around thinking about things in terms of temporal sequencing, thinking about chronology. Um, but probably, I think the most interesting thing that I found from reading this was that because it's qualitative rather than quantitative, it takes a very interesting approach. So she was looking at the dominant discourse around domestic yes. abuse. Yes. We talked about this briefly because you yes. heard something relevant. Yeah, didn't no, you? so it was so. From what I understood you saying about mm. it, it was about how domestic violence cases are reported and how mm. it's still the case where predominantly the the perpetrator will be named, their picture will be in the paper, mm. there will often be lots of comments about, oh, but he was an amazing dad. Yeah, absolutely. Or he seemed to always be so, you know, such devoted, a devoted father. father yeah. yeah. Or devoted husband mm. and partner and he seemed to you know, seemed to worship the ground his wife walked mm. on. and just Except for the part where he of, killed her. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And just this whole thing where, um, you yeah, know, the fact around, you yeah, know, sometimes the, the the women who've murdered are just a bit of a kind of, a bit part Thought player no. in, their own, in their own murder. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I think, yeah. And the, the point she's making in this um, paper is that actually... So she's doing Foucauldian, Foucauldian, I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. It's a form of discourse analysis anyway, which I don't know a huge amount about. I've never actually done it myself. Um, but just briefly... Oh, you're disappointing me now. I know, right? <laughs> I've never done Foucauldian discourse analysis specifically. But I know that with other forms of discourse analysis, and I, from what I've read about this, it seems to be mostly thematic. So it looks at... Um, drawing themes from the data so you immerse yourself in the data and then you try to look for patterns of um, of, of themes yes. um, it's a form of thematic analysis so they in this in this kind of way of doing things the viewpoint is that you all knowledge that we have is constructed from the discourse that's around us so you and me and the perpetrator and the victim and all of their family members and friends we all live in a world where we talk about domestic abuse in a specific way yeah. and if the way that we talk about it is in a damaging way which is per perpetuating the problem right that is going to feed into our knowledge of oh, domestic abuse okay. so what she's saying is that she's positioning the dominant discourse at the moment she's calling it the crime of passion discourse yeah and I think you really recognise it, actually, yes. just from that description, yeah, you can no, recognise it. So, well, you know you've seen the headlines. You know what that means, yeah. yeah. Um, and she's talking about it being a kind of, this idea of having very gendered roles in relationships, and that being a very natural thing. Like, it's natural for a woman to have yeah. a very feminine, um, subservient role in a relationship. Yeah. Um, and for um, those gendered roles to almost provide a bit of justification for the for the violence. So yeah. if the woman isn't necessarily fitting into those stereotypical gendered roles, um she might that might almost be a justification for why she was murdered. Yeah. Um and it's never quite as as blunt as that, but you can see that in oh, media no, reports that hinting definitely. at that. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting like 
because I remembered a case that had happened in Spalding yes, a couple yeah. of years back with a woman and her daughter who mm. were murdered in the car park of a, a swimming pool mm. by the husband. Oh. And they also had... <laughs> that was really impressive. If you hadn't spotted that Miss A was having a feed while we were chatting, uh, that was neither me or Amy, that was Miss A. To be clear, there's a certain little pickle that made that noise. Oh, dear. And you might look innocent now. Um, but the the sons, um, Luke and Ryan Hart, mm. have done so much campaigning around coercive control. Yes. And they've written a book as well. And just sort of still continue to fundraise to really draw attention to it. Yeah. Because they recognise their mum was sort of... Vilified almost vilified. in the media. And just, or, not, or not even vilified, but just kind of not maybe... Um, her, yeah, it was far it wasn't more her story. Toward, yeah far more the the husband's story yeah. and things and there's also been another case recently where i can't remember the name but they have um the woman who got released from prison having been on a murder sentence right. for murdering her husband and it te- mm. it showed they had proof that she had been the victim of coercive mm. control and because the law had actually changed so that she could then argue it was sort of in- indicative of coercive control mm. the the that she actually murdered her husband, right? Um, but it was due to the coercive control and the abuse that she had suffered. Yeah, it for wasn't a simple over twenty five years. Picture. It wasn't a simple yeah. case at all. I think um, that's what's really interesting about this paper is it really highlights that that is still an issue. I mean, this has literally been produced like weeks ago. This paper was yeah. published weeks ago and I think we think of that as being quite an old narrative you know this idea of oh it's a crime of passion and mm. it's all about romance and when you're this deeply in love there's justification and and it's fair enough and we know that love is all about jealousy and all of those patterns of things are quite yeah. normal in romance and it's just about how much he loves her and how deeply he loves her and it was a sudden and unpredictable spontaneous act um, that kind of passion narrative is still out there and it's certainly still out there in the media and I'll put a um, reference in the notes as well for people who want to read a little bit more about this there was a paper released um, last year that talks about um, narratives in the media around domestic abuse and compares them over a 10-year period yeah and actually Miss A completely agrees exactly. with this statement. Exactly. Um, and it sort of compares then and now and talks about how not much has changed. Yeah. Um, but even in professionals' um, stuff, actually, yeah. Yeah. which something that I thought when I started reading this, I thought, oh, yeah, this happens in the media, but I don't think it really happens in professional <laughs> settings. But actually, then when I read, read the paper, I was like, oh, hang on, no, I recognise that from case conferences, and I recognise that from, you know, work that I've been involved in, and actually even my own thinking. Yeah, I found it a really interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a couple of things that I thought, oh, actually, do you know, I really recognise myself there. Well, I suppose it comes under our unconscious biases, doesn't it? That's it, exactly. And also that thing where, for a variety of reasons, victims of abuse may take actions at times that we as professionals see as not being helpful or not being helpful to their case. They might be difficult to contact yeah. or things. Yeah. And so our own sort of, the fact that we've we've had, difficulty making that contact with them and things 
yeah. can end up making us feel at times like we, you know, they are making it more it's difficult. difficult to help and support them. And I think um, that's definitely one of them. And also this idea of, um, one of the things I really recognised is she was saying... The, the dominant narrative of the crime of passion narrative positions domestic abuse as a couple's problem. So it, you think of it as it's a problem in this relationship. Yeah. And I think that's really dominant, actually. Yes. Yeah, because that is being... how it's seen. It's seen yeah. as there's domestic abuse in this current relationship. Yeah. It's not seen as current... this person yeah. is an abuse perpetrator yeah. across a pattern of relationships. Yeah. And he has had six previous relationships all of which have been abusive the the problem is positioned with the couple instead of being positioned with the perpetrator which is where it should be positioned obviously yes and i think that is really dominant and what comes with that is that we think of it as it's being solved when they leave the relationship yeah and i really see that a lot in safeguarding so the pressure is all on the mum to leave the relationship yeah. and when they leave we think oh that's that problem solved and actually yeah. of course it's not no because you haven't stopped the behavior that perpetrator's going on to find somebody else yeah um and we almost shame and blame the women yeah that when they don't leave the relationship without actually factoring in how big of a risk leaving can be for many yeah. women um, it's a huge risk to take, yeah, and exactly. they understand that better than anyone. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I found that really interesting. That positioning yeah. of it, I thought I've I found myself guilty of that many times, because you find yourself saying, "Oh, has there been domestic abuse in previous relationships?" Or, um, you know, is it is it isolated to this relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, no, it's yeah. that thing where it's like, yeah, my brain just at times doing this podcast, my brain kind of goes, whoa. I know, right? Because it's just that thing where it is, yeah, yeah so much to consider. So definitely, we want, I'm going to be listening back to you going, ah, oh, yeah. And I'm going to be listening back to it thinking, I should have said that and I should have said this. If you haven't gathered, listener, I'm a bit passionate about this topic. Um, <laughs> and, you know, not always, um, not always a simple thing. I think the more you think about it and the more you challenge yourself actually the more you realise the complexities of it well do have a look for our blurb because it's going to have links to everything that Amy's been talking about Mm. Um, and yeah it's definitely a very hot topic especially if you're uh, starting a safeguarding module soon or even just for your own practice and things as well there could be some really useful info here to help you structure case conference reports or even if you're going into a situation where you've heard there has been abuse and things things to at least bear in mind and be considerate of so um we'll leave it there but if you want to get in touch with us we're on twitter at imhv and we also have a facebook page um, I am a health visitor and our email address is um, longform I am a health visitor at gmail.com and we look forward to sharing more with you soon. Thanks very much guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.